My name's Callum Coomba, and I'm here with Mark Rude Blatovich. Together, we form the duo Basinga de Gadaland, and we've just released two albums you can find on Bandcamp. In this series, Wordlender, we speak to a guest artist every week who has some connection to the landscape in their day-to-day -day practice. Today we're joined by Simon Kirby, an artist and professor of language evolution at the University of Edinburgh. Simon is a fellow of the British Academy, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Cognitive Science Society and a member of the Academy of Europe. His work parallels scientific and artistic investigations of cultural evolution and the origins of human uniqueness, particularly the evolution of language. In 1997, Simon founded the Centre for Language Evolution, which has pioneered techniques for growing languages in the experimental lab and exploring language evolution using computer simulations. His artistic work includes Cyberfon, which won a BAFTA in 2009 and is now part of the permanent collection of the National Museum of Scotland. And since the 2020 lockdown, Simon has been creating a series of pen plotter drawings which allow the inclusion of sound uh, in representations of place. So welcome, Simon. Uh, to start with a, a more general question, um, what are the links between your work in language evolution and your artistic projects? Ah, oh, it's a great question, and thanks thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, it's it's uh, yeah, it's been great to find out about what you two are doing and be involved in any way that I can. Um, this question is a, it, I mean, it's a great one. It's actually the question that I've been kind of challenging myself with for the probably the last 15 years or so um i mean initially I, I guess i would think my day job it was doing scientific research on the origins of language but i think it you know i can't, can't remember now i guess about 15 years ago or so i started to get interested in trying to find other creative outlets that's not to say that doing science isn't creative. I think it is an, it's an intrinsically a creative endeavour. But I was just interested in, in trying some new things out. And I was lucky enough to, to have the opportunity to collaborate with very open-minded artists, um, particularly Tommy Perman and Ziggy Campbell. And initially, it was just a, a sense of kind of play, you know, just saying, well, some of the techniques that I knew about from my scientific research so sort of help collaborate artistically with those two um but then very quickly i realized that when you engage yourself in a artistic endeavor what you're essentially doing is an investigation of questions that are important to you and then i realized that that's exactly what i was doing with my scientific life too mm. and very quickly the kind of boundaries between these these kind of two worlds that we've been sort of led to believe are real just melted away and i realized that 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 scientists and artists are, are often asking exactly the same sets of questions perhaps there are differences in the ecology of science and the ecology of the arts i mean one thing that scientists are funded much better than artists and they have job security. I mean, these are basic things, but they're really, really striking. When you travel both worlds, I'm, I was horrified at how in the arts people have just assumed that they'll accept the kind of uh, career precarity that would not be acceptable 
for someone who was a professional in the sciences. But yeah, so I started realizing that the questions that I was interested in, questions about what it means to be human, essentially, um, were the same questions in both of these worlds. Um, and what I started doing was trying to ask those questions or pose those questions or get audiences to think about those questions in the things that we made um, in these artistic yeah. collaborations. Um, yeah, there's. I think that intersection of the, the science and the, the art is something that you like, straddle it very elegantly anyway. And the, I guess the things that you bring to, you know, building apps and using these like robots and programming all this stuff is just something that uh, normal artists, I guess, don't have those skills. So yeah, maybe you could just tell us more about some of those particular projects where you kind of brought this new technique or, or uh, new technology. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the the first, the most technically complex project. Well, the, the first very technically complex project that we were we worked on together. So this was myself, um, Tommy, and Ziggy, uh, and the one we're probably most well known for still is Cyberfon. So um, this we conceived of this, uh, I guess, two thousand and eight or something like that, probably. Um, and at that time, um, there was this kind of belief or this kind of sense in, in, in the music world that social media was the route to stardom, basically. So at that time it was in MySpace and there were, you know, bands that, that were getting signed on the back of having a big MySpace following. And so everyone was really excited about this idea that you could construct this audience in this new way. Um, but I was interested in, you know, it's a thing that seems almost quaint now to think about, um, this idea that people were, would, were starting to worry about how many followers they had as these kind of metrics of your own social standing. Uh, I mean, now it's, it's, it's just so part of, of, of culture, it seems like it's hard to imagine a stage where that wasn't how the world worked, that, that social media wasn't a big part of our own identities. But at that time it was new and it struck me as kind of worrying, you know, this this um, this thing that it wasn't really the content of people's opinions about you that mattered, but just that they had opinions about you. You know, that, that it was the number of followers, it was the reduction of our worth down to a single number. <laughs> So we, we thought, well, how do how do we how do we talk about that without it sounding horrendously tedious and didactic and just like you know hectoring like oh the kids of today you know like we didn't want to have anything to do with that but we wanted to to have people have a laugh about this side of themselves whilst also maybe thinking about it so we hit upon this idea of like well. Um, we'd seen some old adverts for uh, player pianos from the early 20th century. And what was really striking about them is that these, these like automated instruments were touted as, as if they were people. It's like the, you know, the piano player that never gets tired or whatever. I can't remember the details. 
So there were there were already these automata from a century ago were personified, even though they didn't look like people. They weren't little robot players. They looked like pianos or or, or whatever. So we struck upon the idea of like what would what would on orchestrion, for example, which is one of these these like multi band playing instruments. What would a one for the start of the twenty first century look like? And we said, well, it would be obsessed with its own online pers- um, popularity. You know, <laughs> an automated band of the twenty first century would would be kind of insecure and needy and desperate for attention. Um, so we built one, and we built it to look like an orchestrion from a hundred years ago. So we we went around antiques shops and junkyards and gradually collected instruments and an old wardrobe a victorian wardrobe which we gutted and Mm. and then and the thing is at that time had absolutely no clue how we could build such a thing Mm. but we just pitched it to a funder we said yeah we're going to do this and they were like wow that's amazing great here's some money not very much money Mm. and then we had to figure out how to do it um and uh yeah, and so that was a case of build, learning how to do robotics, which I didn't know how to do at the time. I just pretended yeah. I did, um, <laughs> um, and then learned how to how to do. How, you know, we created a online persona for Cyberphone on all the platforms that were available at the time, and then wrote code to scrape websites and things to work out how popular uh, Cyberphone was. So every fifteen seconds, Cyberphone checks its stats. Um, if its popularity is increasing, it starts to feel happier and its emotion is shown on an old 100-year-old voltmeter um, where we replace the labels with different emotions from kind of desolation to um, delirium. Um, <laughs> and then and then if it was feeling happy, it would play happier music on its on all these junk shop instruments we put in it, which were mm. which were played robotically. It would also tweet out what it was feeling. Um, and there was this remarkable response to it. it 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 just really people clicked with it. and and it was very interesting that we had when it was in a gallery in Edinburgh, we had people repeat visitors coming and sitting with it. And like writing to it, <laughs> I mean, they 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 engaged with the machine, and they would see it was sad, and they would try and cheer it up by wow. sending it messages, and um, and then there was this kind of odd codependency that would build up between the machine that we'd built, and it eventually became really quite famous, far more famous than any of us. Um, yeah. It, it was on the show, and it won a BAFTA, you know, yeah. all this crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> reflecting on it, I think we obviously, people identified with this idea of a machine that was was overly worried about its own social media presence because it felt it reflected a bit of them. But I think because there was no screens and there was no obvious technology, it was like bits of wood and brass and old falling apart instruments and things like that i think that that people felt an affinity to it a closeness to it that they don't feel with a lot of new media art which is presented on a screen or you know has a kind of digital quality to it even though we could have done that i mean it literally started to fall apart as soon as we built it and it was so badly made 
<laughs> but yeah, and then it would then um, a few years later, the National Museum of Scotland um, was doing a big reorganisation, and they wanted to have something that bridged between their science and technology section and their art and design section. And they wanted also to collect something that was represented social media. And they, they didn't know how to do that because they had telephones and they had computers and so on, but they wanted something that was, this is in our collection represents this point in history. And so they approached us about collecting um, Cyberfon. Um, and so for, it's not there anymore, but for, for several years, it was in this special room in between the science and technology section and the art and design section in the museum. And was it just wallowing in, in misery or were people still? It's very interesting. So we talked a lot to the museum about how, how do you collect an object like this? And um, so one of the things I said is, look, you know, these social media platforms are changing all the time. So the code will stop working at some point. What do we do? Do we update it or do we let it die? And we went for the decision that this thing wouldn't be updated. So gradually, all its social media feeds went silent. You know, MySpace was no longer a thing, you know. Um, and so the last time I looked, it was just sort of in this kind of permanent state of indifference in the middle of where it says indifference. Um, uh, also, it actually kind of evolved to not care. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't know what would happen because I'd coded it to sort of have this addictive personality so that if it got more fame, then the following day it wanted even more. And if it didn't keep getting more, it would start to get depressed again. Wow. Um, so I think in the end it just kind of settled on this kind of sort of half asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, God, I hope that's not where, where humanity is headed, <laughs> just yeah. to be this indifferent. I mean, yeah, it, it's, um, I think one of the things that uh, is interesting about it was, like, we, we designed it to, to maybe last three weeks, because that was what the original exhibition run was, and, and it was quite alarming having to, I mean, firstly, having to move it, and it did tour, it went down to the south coast, it went to London, and that was the worst experience of my life moving things. It's just horrendous. Like try and the back just looked like like a telephone exchange had exploded. Mm. I mean it was just wires. It was just a total mess. Um so uh yeah. Apparently what the way the museum works, um we actually got to go to the stores in Granton, which is one of the most amazing experience over my life where you see all the stuff that they own that isn't in the museum so there's like a whole house that's just full of whale skeletons for example and I, I'm walking through and there was one little doorway and there was a sort of uh, circular window in the doorway and I peered through and it was a tiny room completely filled with a stuffed elephant life-size oh, elephant <laughs> you know it's just stuff like that the elephant in the room mm. like, I, 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 <laughs> Someone must have put it there as a joke. Yeah. But the way they, they, they transport these objects, these technical objects, is they take them apart and then immediately rebuild them in the stores. Because they say they can't, if they keep things like they've got old printing presses and things, if they keep them in bits and they lose the knowledge of how to put them back together. Um, 
so they always have everything kept it as it was in a working state which i find find quite interesting it's like how do you how do you preserve and conserve mm. a piece of technology when it no longer means anything i mean that that object's our, our robot is sitting out there in a warehouse in granton and i don't think it'll ever come out again it it'll be meaningless mm. so mm. so yeah i find that quite a sort of poetic end to this thing <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. Um, so I'd like to ask you about another one of your pieces. Maybe it was around the same time, but I think it was kind of a, a bit earlier on. Um, so three pieces for plants, Yang Yangjin, Yangjin, yeah, Yangjin, bamboo robot and robotic chimes. Yeah. Um, and on, on your website, it talks about the way the these things interact with the environment. Um, in quite incredible ways. And I was wondering if you're able to elaborate on that project a little bit. Yeah, so that that was, you're right, that was the one, I think it went as immediately before Cybrophon. And in fact, a lot of that project is inside Cybrophon. So we reused components. So in fact, all of the chimes that were used for three pieces are, are in Cybrophon. Uh, but yeah, so the the... So the idea there was we were approached by the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh to take part in a, it's a cultural celebration of links with China. We were interested in um, potentially doing something musical um, and something involving bamboo. We were lucky enough to be able to borrow a Chinese zither, essentially, the Yang Chin, which is an incredible instrument, loads and loads of strings. Uh, it's a very evocative sound. We were going to make like an audio piece, you know, with speakers. Um, and we had this idea of it would sort of react to the environment somehow and react to people going into the gardens, make it interactive. And we thought, well, we had to have it in the palm house because that's the most amazing place in the botanics. Uh, and then we went into the palm house and we, we, thought, we looked around and we saw the people spraying the the plants and the whole place is just completely soaking wet all the time and and I started to think about my laptop because it would be it would have been my laptop that would have been there for like the week or two weeks or whenever long it was and I thought I really don't think I want to have an expensive machine in here playing audio so we thought shit we've got to come up with a solution to this and that's when we hit upon actually using real instruments and playing them uh, robotically rather than using digital audio um so it was entirely driven by the fear of losing <laughs> more expensive technology um so and that really opened up that whole new line of inquiry for us of using acoustic instruments so we ended up getting the instead of Recording the Yang Chin, we actually had it there in the gardens. And the whole thing had to run not on a computer, but on a little microcontroller board that was cost like 20 quid. And we could put it inside a lunchbox that was um, waterproof. <laughs> and then they all had to run on really low power and so on. So the real challenge was trying to make something that, that had a kind of the magic of something interactive but without really any computational power at all so what it actually did is it's very simple it, it measured the water in the soil using like 
I don't think it was probably a couple of nails and a little electrical circuit. And then it, it had some motion detectors for when people walked into the different parts of the palm house. And then it would choose which of some pre-written music, which track it was going to play based on the soil quality. We would essentially uh, remix it based on where people were standing. Um, and the magical thing about it was people started to try and figure out what was triggering the music. And so people would do things like they would stand on a particular paving stone and then they would think, oh, that's that's what caused it. And then they would stand on another one. Oh, no, no, it's not that. And and people would start to build this quite elaborate idea of this thing being incredibly intelligent and somehow tracking where they were. And it was actually really simple. Like there was just a few motion detectors. Um, but watching people kind of play with that and respond to it and impute into these objects a kind of intelligence that wasn't there, that was a real lesson to me in how small amounts of magic are all that's needed and, and the rest comes from from the people engaging with the work. Mm. Um, same with Cyberfon, you know, this is like the, all it ever said was, I am feeling... X, but people then put all of themselves into project. They project all of themselves onto that and say, "This is a thing that has feelings and it's 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 got emotions. It's got this richness to it. That richness is them, you know." And I think the best work does that. I think it just gives you enough that you fill in all the blanks yourself. I think that really leads me on, uh, or leads us on perfectly to the next question which is kind of the, the importance of embodied experience and, and also place and location in your work. And I think, well, we just touched there on the kind of audience perspective there, uh, but there's also an artistic perspective, maybe with some of your more, um, maybe Sing the Gloaming and some of your drawings. Um, so I thought maybe you could just say a bit more about how you came to become interested in embodied experience. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. Like, because it's something that I, I don't really have an answer to, but it's something I've, I've I've been thinking about recently. In the early stages, I was very keen on us building things, you know, physical things. So these these installations were very tangible, and that felt important to me. I guess in in some ways in my work. It's, we live in a world, the world of ideas, you know, the, the, the academic life, the scientific life is, is often quite heady. And I liked the idea of being able to, to have something that you, know, you could stub your toe on, you know, an idea you could stub your toe on, right? That, that, that to me, and Cyberfon was very much like that. That was something that could kill you by falling on you and nearly did. Um, and so the, it, that was, that was very attractive to me. Um, in a way, that was a contrast for me with a lot of new media art at the time, which was very web-based, you know, it was very digital. But then we were asked to do a piece for the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, and the, the brief was to make a souvenir for the Commonwealth Games. And, and there it was very much, you say, make something physical for the Commonwealth Games. And because we were <laughs> contrary with everything we did, we just thought, right, we want to make something, we've been asked to make something physical, so let's not do that. And let's try and make something that is completely counter to what we 
kind of at that stage was our was our practice. But we wanted to say, well, what is a souvenir? And so a souvenir for me was was very much about honouring a, a place and a time, but particularly a place, right? You get a souvenir of the Eiffel Tower, and it's a little Eiffel Tower. Okay, it's a physical object. It's, it's probably made in China. Um, like the important thing is you bought it when you were at the Eiffel Tower. It, it's a totem. It's a, a link to the place that, where you were. So what what would it mean for a digital thing to be a souvenir? And I, it would have to be tied to place. And at that time, it was around that time where nearly all smartphones had GPS on them. Um, so this was a great opportunity to use uh, GPS as a way of bringing the physical world into the virtual world. So for that project, we made a an app that played a song on a loop but there were like billions of different versions of this song so the way we did that was they had had the song and then we we recorded many many different versions of the guitar track and the vocal track and the drum track and the bass line and so on so the the app would would on the fly create a remix um and then uh you'd put the headphones on and it would start playing the song and then you would start walking Uh, And on this screen, it would tell you how many meters you were away on Earth from the uh, site for the opening of the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. If you were walking towards that point in Glasgow, the song would remix in such a way as to get a bit more fuller, like the instruments would go from acoustic to electric and so on. And then if you turn around and walk the other way, it would start, start going back down and you start remixing down to a sort of acoustic version. And I listened to it a lot and, and, you know, certain routes, my walk to work would have a certain sort of quality of the music and my walk back from work would have another one. And there were certain points where I'd, you know, turn a corner in Morningside and, and the music would change. Um, and that, that made me really interested in this idea of place as and your, your physical location in space. There's, there's something powerful about the idea of a location, a point on Earth, having some kind of resonance in, in what you create and your relation to that. that um, so I think that's how, that's, that's how I started thinking about this. And then um, certainly with the drawings, um, those two things, the idea of something physical and honouring a place come together basically and that that was definitely born out of the lockdown about being stuck in indoors and not being able to go anywhere not being able to to build stuff with with the people who i work with who build things um, for those that don't know could you just describe your uh, machine drawing yeah project? yeah so it, i guess it leads quite nicely onto that so i guess it was may last year and i was just just kind of thinking i well i i want to make something and i, I don't really know what to do and I'd been interested for a long time in these uh, pen plotter robots. So these are quite simple devices, but where um, basically there's a there's a one metal strip and then another one at right angles to it. One moves along one axis and then extends in another axis. Um, and then at the end, you mount at the end a pen or a pencil or any drawing implement. And then there's another little motor that lifts it up and down. And so you can put this over over a piece of paper um, and then send instructions from a computer to say, 
move to this point, put the pen down, move to here, lift the pen up and so on. So you can basically create a drawing in this ridiculously over-elaborate way using this robot. So it's, it's like an incredibly expensive, insanely slow printer. <laughs> like it will take, take it, it's completely absurd, but there's something about the quality of what you get out that looks completely different to what you get out if you print print something out from your computer into a printer, because it looks like a drawing that's made with a pen or a pencil, um, and you immediately see it. You're like, I recognise that. I recognise that that's a piece of physical art made with tools that I understand, like a ballpoint pen. And yet, because you, you're controlling it by the computer, you can you can have this uncanny effect of something that is at once familiar. It's a you know an office biro. I can see it. I can smell it. <laughs> you know the colours, right? And yet, it's doing something superhuman. It's like so. Some of my drawings, I got interested in what would happen if you drew, you know, maybe two miles of pen onto a paper uh, so they're like thousands or tens of thousands of lines that took maybe three days for the robot to draw what would that look like um so so i started playing with that as a mainly as a frustration for for being stuck indoors and not knowing when i was going to be able to make an installation again um and it was just so liberating and so exciting and it, and it turned out it was the first art that I'd done on my own. Everything else I've done is a collaboration. Um, and then I was like, okay, so what do I want to make this about? Can't I can't just draw pretty pictures. Or I mean, I was just interested in saying, like, why might I be doing this? And that's when I sort of hit on the idea of, of location again. So, so my first series of drawings were drawings... Um, that look a bit like tree ring patterns, and each one is different. And the the shape of the tree ring patterns is triggered by uh, uh, coordinates in longitude and latitude. Um, so for every point on the Earth's surface, there's a different tree ring pattern that the software I've written will create. And if you move like 10 meters that direction, the tree ring pattern will be almost the same, but not quite. And then if you move like several miles away, then it, it's quite different. And then I put it up on online and asked people to send locations in, and then I would send them a, a their own personalised tree ring drawing for that location. And it was just, it was a really kind of, yeah, it was quite a powerful experience because people would send me these locations, and I would look at the, I would go and look them up on Google Maps. And they would often say why they'd chosen it, even though I didn't ask. They would say, oh, this is where my, you know, my, um, this is where I proposed to my fiancé, or this is where we, we spread um, my father's ashes, you know, things like that. They were sort of really powerful, resonant locations. And often very beautiful when you go to them on, on, on uh, when I went to look at them. Um so it felt like I was was being let into this very kind of personal connections that people had with places, and I was being allowed to help them honor those places. So it was really, um, yeah, I was very moved. Actually, I didn't, wasn't wasn't really expecting that. Yeah. Um, and then, so I was I thought, okay, I want to do more stuff with place. Um, 
And then it, it was around about the end of the summer where we were started to be allowed out again um, during the lockdown. And I was lucky enough to be able to take a trip to uh, Canna, uh, the isle off the west coast of Scotland. And I made some field recordings there of the sound of the sea. And I thought it would be interesting to, to try and weave those sounds into the drawings because it struck me that you, you go somewhere and you take a photo of it with your phone and maybe it's just familiarity. We're so familiar of photos of places mm. that sometimes it feels like those don't have the power that you expect them to, you know, like a, an image of a place that you've been somehow feels a bit hollow. Um, and I thought, is there a way of creating an image for a place that isn't representational, um, but somehow captures some of the power of, of, of the place? And field recordings seem to me to be a way of doing that. So sound is very interesting, I think, because sound is physical. You know, what a sound is, is you being hit by pressure waves. Um, so when you capture a sound, you're capturing a moment where you were, in a way, in a way, physically interacting with the world at that point. And so I, then I use those that audio to help shape the drawings uh, of the places. So a series of drawings, including the one that I've done for your um, uh, project, where the drawing doesn't doesn't represent the sound in any straightforward sense, but the, the decisions that the algorithm makes to generate the lines is entirely driven by the audio um, in, in the uh, field recordings from those locations. I think that's so, so great that um, even with that souvenir project, I was really thinking about how you managed to make something that's like uh, physical, it's still connected to physical place, um, and you still, you know, still requires physical movement, I guess. You know, there's, there's a thing that came out a few weeks ago about these non-fungible tokens. And it's like taking everything bad about things that are physical in art yeah. and like monetizing it, basically. You know, the fact that it's like, it's unique and it's one thing. But with your art, I think there's so much more that you appreciate the physical side, but you also honor like that. You know, your pen plot drawings are reproducible, but, you know, at some kind of cost. And, they, you know, they are unique, but, yeah, I'm not really too sure how to put it into words. But I just think it's it's very uh, much the antithesis of an NFT, which just seems... I'm very glad to hear yeah. you say that, because the NFT thing upsets me at some level that I can't quite put my finger on. I, I like what you said about it. It, it almost, it almost distills the worst aspects of the art world into one idea. Yeah. It's like the kind of, it's our nemesis somehow. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, apart from the fact that it's completely, utterly baffling, like what the hell it is. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in the world that I'm now um, part of, I guess, the, this generative art world, um, I mean, it's all quite new to me because I've only been doing the, these drawings for a year. But the people I follow, um, that's the world that they, they they move in. And a lot of that work isn't physical and it is just on the screen. I don't want to cast 
doubts on the validity of that work. I mean, it's incredible. Some of the work is just jaw-dropping on a technical level and, and, you know, all power to them. It's just not something that interests me. But for people who work in that world, there's a real question of how does that fit into the capitalist notion of of stuff having value, you know, and, and selling things. Um, and so for them, NFTs feel like, like, oh, here's our, here's our savior. This is how we can do this. This is how we can sell this stuff. And yeah, I find it, it, it somehow deeply upsetting. I mean, apart from anything else, the, like, you know, obscene amounts of money that these very early NFT works uh, made I mean, that, there's just no sense that that, that that can be anything other than a sickness. <laughs> it seems to me to say, like, sell yeah. something for $65 yeah. million. Like, no matter what it is, that's wrong. You know? I mean, I suppose, like, the music world is more familiar with this idea of the intangible, infinitely copyable product. So I'm, a, I'm actually a wee bit surprised there's not been more of discussions about music and NFTs. Mm. And <laughs> maybe that ship has sailed. They're already used to the fact that that, that music has no uh, monetary value anymore. So um, briefly going back to um, your machines, um, I, I guess your most recent one uh, was for our album artwork, which looks absolutely incredible. And... I was wondering if you could um, describe what what you've done and how that relates to our album. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Uh, I mean, and thank you again for approaching me about it. It was such a delightful thing to be asked to do. So it was it was fun talking to you about your project and then um, the conversation and trying to think about what what how to distill what you were doing into an image was a very interesting exercise. And it and it struck me that the importance of the two of you being in two different locations at the same time and following the same kind of process, but in parallel. And so that made me think, I want to see if there's a way of create an image that matches that so the idea that you were, you were far apart, but you were temporarily aligned. You know, it was the, it was the solstice. Um, and you were following a certain track and you were doing that together, and so and the the, the result, the the um, album you've produced, is about bringing together of that 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 activity that you did apart. Which is, I mean, if anything, is a is an is a good metaphor for for the, our lives this last year. That's it. Um, I knew I wanted to do something to do with the locations, um, and so started looking at the maps of the two locations where you were walking. Um, and just trying to see if there was any features of the geography that would be interesting to play around with. And as I was looking, I I, I was looking at the shape of the coastline up um, uh, Mark, where you were walking, I think, right? Is that a tense mirror? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, look at that. And I knew that there were certain things that I didn't want to have in the shape because of the way. The kind of algorithms that I'd been playing with for generating lines get quite ugly if they have certain kind. I just happen to know that certain kinds of curves don't work well with it. And then I was looking at the area that 
Callum had had walked, and then I spotted this burn. And I thought, that looks familiar. And then I, I got the two maps and laid them on top of each other. There's a section of the burn and a section of the coast that, that that echo each other. And so I thought, okay, it's absolutely got to use those two forms. So the image that ends up on the album cover at the top is the part of the coastline um, at Tensmuir. And at the bottom is the burn uh, near where Callum walked, um, but but they they're mirror imaged, so the 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 southern one is rotated round, so they echo each other. So I trace those on the map, and the numbers that come out of that get fed into the software I've written, and so that will draw the first two lines, and then there's another, I think a thousand or so lines on the drawings. So the question is, what happens to all of those? And what happens is that you, the the code takes those lines, and it basically treats all the points. I'm going to actually explain how it works, which I never do, and yeah. your listeners will now turn off. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you imagine all the points on the line as like little beads on a on a string. Um, and then those beads all move gradually. Say it's say it's Callum's line at the bottom of the picture. They all float gradually upwards, and they're all influenced by the original line. Um, so the original line kind of pushes against them, like a sort of like a wind or something, a force that's pushing them up the page. But as it moves up the page, it's influenced also by um, data drawn from the audio recording. The process for doing that is like ridiculous. It's just the digital audio is made up as a, is basically a series of numbers. What you can do is take those numbers and convert them into essentially an image that is basically a representation of those numbers. And it doesn't look like anything. It's just like, it's just an uninterpretable image. But I can use that image to just basically act as a sort of extra wind that's blowing these uh, beads on the string as it goes up the page. Um, so the line gradually loses the form of the original piece of uh, geography and starts more and more to be influenced by the audio instead. The end result is drawn using, it's actually drawn using a sepia ballpoint pen. It's it, it turns out that the one that seemed to work best was um, it's a Fisher space pen. <laughs> uh, these are pens that are used by the astronauts in the International Space Station, and they work well because they're pressurized. And it has this very interesting ink that's slightly less viscous than the normal ballpoint pen ink, and it kind of has this slightly luminous quality to it. And it's drawn on, on um, synthetic paper, which is waterproof. And, and that allows me to put thousands of lines down and know that the paper isn't going to to get destroyed um, by you know a robot drawing over it thousands of times. And I think the end result, to my eyes, looks like weirdly like something that could have washed up on a shore. It looks kind of like a, a piece of fabric or maybe a piece of seaweed or something a bit worn. Um, so yeah, I, I was. It made us when we when we got the artwork, it it like really pushed us to 
we were like, all right, this album's got to be really good. So, you know, it, 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 like, oh, we've got this beautiful object. Like, we've got to just go the extra mile and like, make sure it's... Well, that, so. hey, that, okay, that's good. I mean, it, it should, collaborations should always be like that. Collaborations yeah. are, are a way of... I mean, every collaboration I've been in, I've always thought, oh, right, I've really got to do my best here because... Oh, awesome. Oh, thanks so much for chatting to us. Yeah, that's been great. That, oh, no, yeah, thank you. I've really so, enjoyed so it. So interesting, so much. Like, it's just, we have so much stuff in common, really. Yeah, that was why it was so exciting to be um, uh, to be approached. And, uh, yeah, I really um, i am looking forward to hearing more of the, the music. Um, and, yeah, and, and if anyone's interested in... in um, uh, the drawings um yeah we we we're going to make i think i can't remember how many we said that we're going to make um up to 12 15, 15 or so 15 right yeah and and so the, the every single drawing is unique um in the sense that there's always imperfections in the way a pen works you know mm. um so they're all slightly different um so they're all originals um but they're all the same image and and yeah uh, i'll i'll make them for anyone who wants one, <laughs> so just uh, you can you can get them off your Bandcamp page, yeah. I guess. Great, and we can find all your other other work on your website as well. Yeah. yeah.